In Ephesians chapter 5 and 6. You don't have to turn there, but, but there you have Paul who will give a, a word of command and encouragement and challenge to wives, to Christian wives. And he does that for two or three verses. And then for the next nine verses, he talks to Christian husbands. And he doesn't mean for Christian husbands when he starts talking to wives. Christian husbands aren't there for, okay, I can just check out. And when he's talking to Christian husbands, he doesn't mean for Christian wives to just check out. Nor in chapter 6, when he starts going into talking how uh, children need to be obedient to their parents. He doesn't mean for parents to start checking out. Nor when, in the very next verse, when he starts telling fathers... Raise your children in the discipline and instruction, the nurturing love of Christ. Raise them up in the instruction of Christ. He doesn't mean for children to check out. In the very next section, he talks to Christian workers and laborers, as well as Christian bosses. Each time he is singling out a group of people and moving on one to the next, to the next, to the next. And it may be that you don't really find yourself in one of those two groups. You may not find yourself uh, being directly talked about or talked to. And the question is, what good is it? I mean, do we, do we just ignore those passages because they aren't directly relevant to us? Or worse yet, are we then responsible to make everyone else fulfill their obligations? So like, wives, your job is to make your husband love you. And husbands, your job is to make your wife respect and submit to you. And and parents, your job is to make your children obey. And children, your job is to make your dads raise you up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And Christian workers and employees, same thing. Is that the way it works? Well, no. God doesn't give us instruction like that so that we try to leverage whatever authority or whatever influence or whatever power we might have to force others to do what God commands. Rather, what we see here is that this, these instructions are given publicly, not privately. He doesn't write a separate letter to wives and then a separate letter to husbands and a separate letter to children and parents. He doesn't do that. They're given publicly. We might guess that he does it for a number of reasons. He might give this instruction for us so that we might learn to pray for one another along these lines. Husbands and wives, do we pray for one another? Husbands, are you praying for the Lord to work in your wife's heart so that she does what God calls her to do? And same thing, wives, you want your husbands to love you, to sacrifice you like Jesus loves and sacrificed himself for the church. Are you praying for your husbands? Might it be that children are to pray for their fathers, for their mothers, even as parents are to be praying for their kids? Employees praying for their Christian managers or non-Christian managers, and, and you who are Christians and over-employees or managing or a boss or some kind of leadership role in your company, you're praying for them. Might it also be for you to find ways to encourage them in these ways so that husbands and wives learn how to encourage one another to obey God in the way that God commands 
And children and parents, how can you encourage one another in these ways? Bosses, managers, employees, how, do you, how can you encourage those with whom you work to do what is right, especially if they are believers? And might it also be that we are given this instruction publicly so that we learn to live with one another in such a way so as to make their obedience to Christ in this way easier. Husbands, you desire your wife's respect and submission, but are you loving her, affirming her, treasuring her so much that it fosters that respect and submission in her? Wives, you you desire your husband's love. Rather than demand it, can you respond to him in such a way that fosters it? Fathers, you you want your children's obedience. We want them to listen to us, to, to, to honor and obey as God commands. How are we making it easier for our children? And children, young men, young women, how are you making it easier for your parents to raise you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Are you fighting with them? Arguing with them? The same questions might be leveled to us as employees and as bosses. The point is not that we are responsible for someone else's sin. The point is that we can, by our actions, make it more difficult for others to obey the Lord. And this will hurt not only them, but it hurts us. And we have, within our text, a scripture, verses 18 to 20 of 1 Timothy, Even as Paul is writing to Timothy, Timothy, he is writing to him, not just as an ordinary Christian, but he is writing to Timothy as a Christian leader, as a pastor, as an elder, as a leader in his church. This is what you must do. And so verse 18 to 20, along with all of 1 Timothy, 18 and verse 20, 18 to 20, verses 18 to 20 are a particular command to pastors, to elders, to church leaders. We might extend this even to, to Sunday school teachers, to anyone who leads in any capacity. And so you might say, well, this doesn't apply to me. Maybe I should just check out. And I would argue that the same way we view those passages in Ephesians are the same way we ought to view this. Passages like this ought to instruct us, how can I pray for these people? How can I pray for my pastors? How can I pray for my elders? How can I pray for those who teach children and Sunday school and lead in this way or that? How can I pray for them? How can I encourage them? It shows us also, if, for those of you who desire to lead, to teach, it shows you what you must do, how you must live. It reminds us of the kind of people that we must be. The text reminds us of the kinds of people that, it, that we want to be so as to make our church leaders, our elders, our pastors have 
what the author of Hebrews writes when he says that they want to serve you with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So here Paul gives a particular, a particular set of commands to Timothy. And while this, these commands may not be directed toward each one of us equally, we are all responsible for them. We must all respond to them in some way. They may not be directed to us, but they are definitely directed for us. And so as we approach this text, we want to see not only what pastors and elders and others are to be doing, we want to see how can we encourage, how can we pray for one another, How can we serve one another? Where do we ourselves need to grow? So read with me, verses beginning in verse 18, and we'll we'll read through the entire text. Paul writes to Timothy, This charge I commit to you, my son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, having rejected, concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Here we are given, Paul begins in verse 18, with these words, that here is a charge that is being entrusted to Timothy. This charge I commit to you, This charge I commit to you. And this charge here that he is given is the same word that he has used earlier, twice in 1 Timothy in this chapter. When he says, this command or this charge I give to you. We read this in verses 3 to 5. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, remain in Ephesus that you may charge, there's that word, some that they teach no other doctrine. Now give, nor give heed to fables and endless genealogies which cause disputes rather than godly edification which is in faith. Now the purpose of the commandment, there is our second, there is that second instance of this word. The purpose of this charge or command is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from a sincere faith. What he's calling for us from here on one level for all church leaders is that they are to love from a pure heart, with a good conscience and a sincere faith. But on another level, it is also here to to protect the people of God by teaching, but by also silencing those teachers that are present for Timothy, those that are present in Ephesus where he is pastoring. He is directed to silence those teachers who are leading people astray. And how does Paul describe this spiritual work? Well, the word charge carries with it a a military mindset. It is the kind of word that would have been used in a military context. When one superior officer is giving a directive, a command, an order to an inferior officer. This is Paul. I am charging you. I am ordering you. This is an order. We are under orders, and here is what they are. And he describes this This spiritual, pastoral work as waging the good warfare. 
that by them you may wage the good warfare. Or other translations might have fight the battle well or fight the good fight. The word here is still in the context of, of soldiering. The picture is a ministry, a service, a life that is under duress, under regular attack, under pressure, a life that is at the center of, of conflict. Paul knew exactly what he was calling Timothy to because he had felt that conflict himself. Again and again and again, Paul felt the pressures, the daily pressures of what it took to minister. And he knew what he was asking Timothy to do. Not just asking, but ordering Timothy to do. And he he knew what he was ordering all who would seek to serve Christ. All who would seek to lead amongst God's people, who would lead to teach. It is a fight. It is a warfare. It is hard work. You will be questioned. You will be more than questioned. You will enter into conflict. You will enter into homes and lives. You will be invited in. You will have to confront sin. You will have to sit beside the bed of someone who is ill, someone who is dying. You will comfort those who grieve. You will assist those who have needs. And you will bear with people quietly and silently. All of this and so much more. And Paul knows this. He describes his own, his own life in such Difficult terms. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 24 to 29, Paul says this. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers at sea, dangers from false brothers in toil and in hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who was weak and I am not weak? Who was made to fall and I am not indignant? Earlier in that same book in Second Corinthians chapter 1, Paul will write this. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the afflictions we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Did you catch that? So great was the burden that Paul felt that he, he was able to say, we felt, we, we felt despair beyond life itself. That is anxiety. That is depression. That that is hardship, the likes of which most of us do not quite fully grasp. What Paul is describing here, this, this difficult work, this good warfare, he is telling us that to serve Christ, to to lead, it is not for the faint of heart. 
And yet, you will remember when we first began looking at the book of Timothy, that Timothy himself is a man who might be described as faint of heart. He was a man who was timid. He was a man who was weak. He was a man who needed encouragement. He was a man who dealt with physical illness. He was a man who who wasn't the, the John Wayne leader leading everyone. He was a man who himself served and led out of his own weakness, out of his own insecurity. And this is the one Paul has put that God himself is called to lead this church in conflict. To serve Christ, to lead, is, is not for the faint of heart, and yet we are all faint of heart. But the Lord provides that which we need to serve him. And he gives particular resources for those who are going to serve. We see this first resource, and I, I cannot help when we read this text, that think the following that charge that Paul gives, that these words are so powerful. He writes, this charge I commit to you, my son Timothy. Here in, this, in the middle of this charge, when he's delivering this order, he reminds Timothy of the spe- special bond, this affection that they have, this friendship What Paul is reminding Timothy is that he is supported, he is loved, he is being prayed for and cared for. He is reminding Timothy that he is not not alone. And this reminds us of the danger that it is for us to serve Christ on our own. That no man is an island. We need one another. Church leaders, pastors need other pastors. They need other counselors. We are ourselves weak. More than this, we see the second resource that Paul calls Timothy to remember. Not only of this special bond that they have, but he says, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you you may wage the good warfare. He re tells Timothy to recall these prophecies that were made about him, made concerning him. And and there is an issue here. We don't know exactly what these prophecies were. We don't know when they were made exactly. We do not know the content of them. Whatever it was, it was enough to spur Timothy on in his service. He was meant in the present, in his present day, to recall that past word that he had been given from God. You and I, when we read this word prophecies, we, we typically think of foretelling. That is, something that is ha- going to happen in the future. That God is revealing to Timothy, through a prophet, that which will happen. Perhaps Timothy has been prophesied great things for his ministry. But that's probably not how you and I ought to read what is being said here. It's not that Timothy, or, or something about Timothy in his future, is being prophesied. But rather, rather than foretelling, we ought to see this as, as forthtelling. That is, God is here telling us what he desires for Timothy. That is, he is, by prophecy, revealing his will to put Timothy in the ministry. 
He is telling us that Timothy, not what Timothy is going to accomplish, but that this is a part of Timothy's commissioning service. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14, we have described for us these prophecies in conjunction with this laying on of hands of the elders. And it seems that this prophecy was given at the same way that Paul and Barnabas were set aside by the Holy Spirit to serve him. So Timothy, by the Holy Spirit, is revealed that he too is going to serve Christ in this particular way. And this all happens particularly at Timothy's commissioning, his ordination service, we might say. So what Paul is reminding Timothy of is his desperate need to daily and deliberately remember God's word to him. And this is no different than what we as pastors and elders and any who would seek to serve Christ must do. Certainly, I don't think any of us would mind if the Lord gave us a particular word for us. And none of us have that. But we have something that Timothy doesn't, that Timothy didn't. We have the finished word of God. Timothy himself was serving. Paul is writing this letter to Timothy around 62 A.D. This means that Timothy, most likely, he had never read the Gospel of Luke, the book of John, the book of Acts, Titus, First and Second Peter. He didn't have Hebrews or any of the other writings of the Apostle John. What he had available to him is a far cry what you and I have. And while there would have been other New Testament books written, some of which he helped pen as he assisted Paul, it is not clear how many of these books that he would have had regular access to. What Timothy is being called to do is the same thing that you and I must do every day, that it is to remember God's word to us, to reflect upon it, To let it be our guide, not our circumstances, not our hardships, not our pain, not our suffering, not our difficulties. But to serve out of what God declares. Not not out of what we may feel. Brother and sister in Christ, Paul is grounding Timothy in what every servant of Christ must be grounded in. The word of God. His promises, his truth, his commands, his ways, his works. Paul calls him to remember God's word to him. And then he tells him what is required for this charge. For him to fulfill this charge that he has committed to him. Verse 19, having faith and a good conscience. And the New King James translates that as having faith. It, it might be better translated. You'll find most other translations don't use the word having there. It's not, not merely a possession, but holding. That is holding faith and a good conscience. That is, this is something we are grasping and clinging to. This is something we not only have, but we are pursuing diligently. First, we must hold the faith. Hold on to faith. 
That is, he is calling Timothy to remember his faith in Christ and to remain faithful to Christ. To continue to believe and to trust in Christ no matter what the circumstances may be. How easy would it have been for Timothy, who's just trying to serve Christ, He just wants to honor the Lord. He wants to do what God has called him to, to obey. And this church that he's at, these people that he's with, these leaders that are making life terrible. Why? And Paul is calling him to continue to trust in Christ. To not allow his present pain to destroy his faith in Christ. To destroy and to lead him astray. Not only holding on to his, his own faith, but to holding on to the faith. That is to hold on to the truth, the truth of the faith, the truth of scripture. This isn't you and I living out our truth. He is being commanded to hold, to find, and to live out the truth. This is real truth, objective truth, absolute truth. As Francis Schaeffer put it, it is truth with a capital T. This is the truth, the faith once delivered to all the saints. This means that Christian leaders, if you seek to be a Christian leader, it means you need to more increasingly understand and grow in what the truth is. This doesn't mean that every Christian leader is going to agree on every secondary issue. But it does mean that those matters of first importance... We must hold with a clear eyes. We must hold with a firm grasp. We ought to be in bold agreement. And one of the things that I see happening, not just in our generation, if you read church history, you will find that it has happened repeatedly in almost every generation, is that there are these calls to unity. And for the sake of unity, it is encouraged that Christians will dispense with those things that might divide, dispense with those things that might fracture that unity or or threaten that unity in some way. Brothers and sisters, Christian unity is a good thing. It is something you and I ought to pursue. It is something we ought to seek to protect. And yet, we must not, we dare not sacrifice on the altar of eternity that, that truth, that absolute truth, merely for the sake of temporary convenience. Temporary unity. If we really want unity, deep and meaningful fellowship with other people, it doesn't happen by by seeking the lowest common denominator. Thick agreement, thick fellowship, thick friendship happens as a result of thick agreement on the truth. The more we agree in Christ, the more we agree on what the scriptures teach, the more robust our joy, our fellowship, our friendship, our service together can be. And by aiming at unity for unity's sake, as if unity is supreme, we miss out 
We miss out on the, on the real joy that we might have. But it's not just a, a holding on to faith. It is, holding a faith. it is holding faith and a good conscience. That is, this is Paul's way of saying that we not only hold on to the truth of God, but we also must follow in the way of God. This is not only right believing, this is right living. This is not only orthodoxy, this is orthopraxy. Right faith, right practice. Why? Why, why good conscience? Why th- this determination for Christian leaders to follow after the way of Christ? Because how can those who claim to lead God's people, how can those who claim to teach God's word live for themselves? We dishonor Christ. We dishonor God's name. We harm the testimony of God's people. If God's, if those who would teach, if those who would lead, if those who write books, if those who would speak at major events, if those who would lead and teach in some way, if, if they live however they please, they undermine the very name and truth that they want to claim to be the ones to teach and lead. What Paul is reminding us of is the ongoing necessity for us all to regularly submit our lives to King Jesus. Having faith and a good conscience. And then Paul gives the dangers of losing these things. Which some, having rejected, have shipwrecked their faith. Concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck. That is, in, in departing from the word of God and departing from the way of God, they have destroyed their faith. Over the centuries, countless men and women have watched their faith crumble and fall apart because it began with making excuses about their sin, softening the clear teaching of God's word. And this is happening all around us. Christian leaders, Christian churches are compromising first in small ways and then increasingly in larger ways. And the harm is clear. We, we shipwreck our own faith. We lose our own faith. And we do harm to the faith of others. Not only is it destruction of our own faith in Christ, it is discipline from among God's people. We see this example of these two men in verse 20. Two men who have suffered shipwreck of their faith, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom Paul says, I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. And that raises all sorts of questions, doesn't it? What does it mean to deliver these two men over to Satan? Is that some special ceremony that happens at night? What what is going on here that Paul is able to say, I I delivered these men over to Satan? We find this this same terminology used in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul commends the church at Corinth... There is a particular person who is engaged in public, publicly known and scandalous sin. 
And Paul's command to the church is to deliver this one over to Satan. What he is talking about here is is what we would term church discipline. That is, he is removing this person as a member from the church. And in doing so, in in removing them from being as, as part of the church, he is identifying that they are no longer, that their profession of faith is no longer seen by the church as, as credible. They are putting them outside the church. In some way, handing, delivering them over to Satan, delivering them over to the consequences of their own sin. Releasing them from the protection, from the encouragement, from the rebuke, from the challenge that is present among God's people. Paul is saying that these two individuals, he, in concert with others, delivered to Satan, removed them from the presence of the church. And the aim here is the same as all church discipline. The aim is... Their repentance, the aim is their restoration. We see that at the very end. Whom I deliver to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Paul's aim here isn't to, to see these men end up eternally in eternal judgment. His aim is the aim of all churches when they seek to discipline someone. It is their restoration. It is their repentance. It is their return to Christ and faith. Brothers and sisters in Christ, would you like to know how to pray for pastors and elders at this church? Pray that they will fulfill, that we will fulfill our charge that God has placed to us to fight the good fight. Pray that they will continue in the faith. To hold the faith, to teach the faith. This church has dealt with both church elders, church leaders, church missionaries who have departed from the faith. Both in in their teaching and in their conduct. Pray for us. Encourage your elders, encourage your pastors, encourage your missionaries. This month, write, text, perhaps call one of our missionaries. They who give themselves and serve, encourage them. Studying God's word, knowing his truth, living their lives the way God commands. These aren't, these aren't just the niceties. These, these are requirements. These are the essentials. Those of you who would like to be elders or leaders one day, who would like to teach, I would ask you, how are you at home with your relatives? How are you at home with your family? How are you this past Thanksgiving with your relatives? When conflict, when arguments around the table begin... How are you with your children, with your wife? How are you at work? Do you, do you work with integrity? Not, not to please a boss, but to please Christ. Not as man pleasers, but in the sight of Christ. How are you with your employees? Do you support and care for them? 
for those who work under you. Not, not stepping on them, not using them, not throwing them under the bus to suit your convenience, but, but doing the best, holding them responsible, but trying to see their success. Do you serve? Do you lead? Do you work with integrity and compassion? Teenagers, you who go to school, You work for your grades. Are you doing so with honesty? Are you treating the students around you as those who are made in the image of Christ? As those who are made in the image of God? Are you listening and and fulfilling what what the requirements are given to you? How is your use of technology and social media? Are the words you, you, you write online, are they words that you would speak openly, publicly, or, or would you be ashamed if that anonymous account got linked to you? How, the, how is the way that you are spending your money? Brothers, sisters in Christ, How you live, what you believe, it matters. And for those of you, brothers and sisters, who would seek to teach a Sunday school class, for those of you, brothers, who would seek to be an elder or a pastor, for those of you who would long to be used by the Lord, perhaps on a mission field someday, are you preparing yourself for that conflict? Are you preparing yourself to fight the good fight? Are you holding the faith? Are you seeking to submit your life to Jesus? Fight the good faith. Fight the good fight. Hold the faith. Pursue a good conscience. By this you will bless those you serve. By this you will honor Christ, your Savior. Let us, by God's grace, pursue him this week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the work that you have given all of us to do is far too much for any one of us to do on our own. Who is sufficient for these things? Oh Lord, we have no sufficiency in and of ourselves. If you do not build the house, the laborers themselves who labor on it will build for nothing. If you do not watch the city, those who watch on the walls watch in vain. Oh, Father, would you draw near to us today? Would you cause our hearts and our minds to be aware of where we have become lax with your word, lax with your truth, lax in our lives, in the way of Christ. Oh Lord, help us. And I pray for our elders. Pray for pastors. That you may encourage them, O Lord. That you may continue to equip and uphold them 
Give them a determined, gritty faith that perseveres through all things. Oh Lord, we thank you for the men whom you have given to us as a church to act as elders. Thank you for those who serve. We praise you in advance for those that you will raise up and add. Oh Lord, help us that we may submit all our minds, our lives, our actions to you. We pray all this in Christ's name, our Savior. Amen.